at something tonight that I find pretty fascinating in uh, Luke chapter 10. If you want to turn there with me, and uh, I'm actually going to back up to chapter 9 to kind of get the context. It's really interesting. The Bible says that it came to pass in verse 51 of chapter 9, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. If I remember correctly, there's a prophecy about his face would be like flint. And I wonder if that's not the connection here. You know, flint is very hard. The Indians used it to make arrowheads, right? And Jesus had his face set toward Jerusalem. There was no turning back. He knew he had to go there to die. And he took it very seriously. And in fact, he sends messengers before his face. And of course, they enter a village of the Samaritans. But these Samaritans knew that his face was set toward Jerusalem. And so they were not happy about that. James and John, you remember when they saw this? They said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just like Elijah did? That's verse 54. Jesus turns and rebukes them. And he reminds them in verse 56, the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And he went to another village. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, in my mind I see them standing afar off, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, well, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. If you're going to follow me, you better be prepared for that. Another one says, Lord, let me first go bury my father when Jesus had commanded, follow me. Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go preach the kingdom of God. Another said, Lord, I'll follow you, but I want to first go and bid them farewell that are at my house. Jesus said, no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. As I read the spirit of these verses, I see Jesus getting more and more aggressive and more and more determined. The time is coming near. I'm going to die. And he's not willing to take any excuses. He said, follow me. He meant it. Don't make excuses. Don't say, i got to go back and do this or do that. Just follow me. So I see Jesus becoming very intense in these latter days of his ministry. And then you come to chapter 10. And it's not enough that Jesus go out and preach, but now he's going to appoint 70 others. And he sends them out to preach. And he tells them some wonderful things. He said, I'm going to give you the power to heal people. I'm going to be with you, and here are your instructions. Here's your marching orders. And he reminds them in verse 16 of chapter 10, He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. He who rejects me uh, rejects him who sent me. You know, when we refuse to hear someone bringing the gospel, Jesus said, they're refusing to hear me. The 70 return. They're excited. They're full of joy. They're beside themselves. They said, Lord, even the demons.
friends are subject to us in your name. They're so excited. It's like, we, we cannot believe it. We, we commanded demons to come out of people, and, and, and they did it. And Jesus said something kind of alarming. 18. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I wonder when that was. I wonder if he's talking about the time when a third of the angels rebelled against God and God said, out of here. And they were sent out of heaven. I wonder if that's when he was talking. I'm not sure. But he said this in 19 to the 70. He said, behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now this verse tells us that we better be careful what we rejoice over. They were all excited because the demons submitted to them. Jesus said, you need to be more excited that your names are written in heaven. And so that's kind of the foundation of our study tonight. Is your name written in heaven? That's not the first time that expression occurs in Scripture. In Revelation 21 and verse 7, he mentions those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The Hebrew writer in chapter 12, verse 23, said to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven? So I think that's a pretty good question for me to ask myself. Is my name written in heaven right now? And it's a good one for you to ask yourself as well. Richard Baxter, a preacher of years ago, one time wrote the following, and I want you to really listen to these words. He said, If there be so certain and glorious a rest, for the saints, why is there no more industrious seeking after it? One would think, if a man did but once hear of such unspeakable glory, talking about heaven, to be obtained and believe what he heard to be true, he should be transported with the vehemency of his desire after it and should almost forget to eat and drink and care for nothing else and speak and inquire after nothing else but how to get this treasure. And yet, people who hear of it daily and profess to believe it do as little-minded or labor for it as if they had ever heard about such a thing or did not believe one word they hear. Wow. What a rebuke for me. So you'd think if heaven is real, would we be excited? like these disciples were when the, when the <coughs> spirits went out of Eden. We'd be excited. And so we're going to talk a little more. Last night we started a study of heaven, and we want to continue that study tonight. Setting our minds on heaven is a discipline that we must learn. We have to learn to meditate about heaven and think about heaven. Talk to our children and grandchildren about heaven heaven like it's a real place because it is remind them that life on earth matters not because it's the only life we have but because it isn't the only life we have we have a life
stop acting as if heaven is a myth. That it's an impossible dream. But see heaven for what it is. The realm we were made for. Let's talk about some incentives for righteous living. Heaven is one of those incentives. You know, if you think regularly about heaven and about the eternal, then you're not going to be an easy prey for Satan. Knowing that this present world will end and that we have an eternity awaiting us will profoundly affect our daily behavior. Somehow, according to Ephesians 2 and 6, we're already seated in heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. That's amazing. And John reminds us in 1 John 3 and 3, everyone that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. So if we have the hope of heaven, then we're going to be interested in purifying our life. You know, if my wedding date is on the calendar, and I'm thinking about the person I'm going to marry, then I'm not going to be an easy target for seduction. And if we have our mind on heaven, it's going to be harder for Satan to get us. Thinking of heaven leads to holiness and pursuing holiness. Heaven affects our activities, our ambitions, our recreations, our friendships, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time. I mean, what's going to last forever? not your car, your house, your career, your business, your investment portfolio. What's going to last forever is God's Word, people, spending time in God's Word, and investing in people. To be heavenly-minded or heaven-oriented is a goal that's to be oriented in the best sense. Paul said, I press on toward the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 14. Here's some reflection questions. I like reflection questions. They really make you think or reflect, right? That's the purpose of it. Ask yourself these questions. Number one, do I daily reflect on my own mortality? That I'm not going to be here forever? I don't do enough of that. Question number two. Do I realize that there's only two destinations, heaven or hell, and that every person, including myself, will go to one or the other? Number three, do I daily recognize that my choices and actions have a direct impact and influence on the life to come? Number four, do I realize that my life is being examined by God and that the only appraisal of my life that will matter is His? And reflection question number five, do I daily reflect on the fact that I truly be, will be with him in heaven one day forever as a Christian? Is my name written in heaven? There was once a college freshman who really enjoyed his freshman year away from mom and dad. He was in another city. In fact, he enjoyed it so much, he didn't do much studying. Just prior to parents' weekend, when the parents would come up, he sent a quick, quick text to his mom. Having a great time. Send money. Flunking all my classes. Prepare pop. Two days went by before she replied. She finally texted back these words. Pop prepared, period. Prepare yourself. 
know, that's pretty good advice. Prepare ourselves for eternity. The most life-changing truth about heaven is that life on earth is only a temporary assignment. Merely the preparation for eternity in heaven. This life is not all there is, even though the world would try to make us think that. We have a final examination coming, and it's time to prepare. Life on earth, just a dress rehearsal for eternity. You know, you're going to spend far more time on the other side of death than you spend on this side of death. 2,000 years ago, God gave a solemn warning through the Hebrew writer, chapter 9, 27. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Now, you look at how will the Lord examine us. And there's probably more than this. You could come up with your list, but I come up with at least nine areas in the scriptures, nine areas that says in these areas, I'm going to be examined by the judge. So let's look at them real quickly. Number one, my motives, thoughts, and deeds. That's number one. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart. We're going to talk about the heart tomorrow morning, Lord willing. I, the Lord, search the heart, examine the mind. To reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. I'll be judged by my deeds. Number two, my words. It matters to God what, kind of, what comes out of my mouth? Yes. In fact, Jesus said emphatically, Matthew 12, 36, I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they've spoken. I'll be careful what comes out of my mouth. One woman had a reputation of having such a beautiful, sweet spirit. And someone said, how do you do that? You never say anything bad. And she said, well, I've learned to taste my words before I let them out of my mouth. That's better to taste them going out than it is to eat them coming back in. Because they taste better going out than they do coming back in. I read in a denominational church, a woman come running forward and said, I've come to lay my tongue on the altar. And the denominational preacher who knew the woman was a gossip, wouldn't repent of it. He said, well, our altar is only six foot long, but roll it out and let the rest of it hang off the end. I thought that is quite a reputation. We don't want to have that kind of reputation because the Bible says we'll be judged by our words. Number three, how we treat other people. Blessed are the merciful. They'll receive mercy, Matthew 5 and 7. James 2.13, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. Number four, the use of and or response to spiritual authority will be judged. Hebrews 13.7, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. Bible says those in authority, those in leadership in a congregation, for example, elders, they're there to obey and submit to their authority as they walk in the Lord. Number five, our evangelistic efforts will be judged. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul said, what is our hope, our joy, the crown in which we glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes, is it not you? Number six, our use of money. 
The Bible says in Luke 12, 21, this is how it will be for anyone that stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters. You cannot serve God in money. Number seven, my willingness to suffer through Jesus. Jesus said, blessed are you, Matthew 5, 11 and 12, when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Our service. Number eight, Matthew 6, 1. Jesus reminds us, don't do your acts of righteousness before men or you'll have no reward from your Father. Number nine, and the final one, our participation in the church with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 10, consider how to spur one another on to good works. You know, the cowboys would wear spurs on their boots, and boy, when they kicked him, he would take off and go. Well, don't go kick your brother or your sister, but spur us on with our actions, with our encouragement, with our love, with our words. Spur us on, and he reminds us not to, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. In 25. So there's nine areas. As we think about is my name written in heaven, and you probably add some others to the list. I understand in Indiana there's a cemetery, and in that cemetery there's a tombstone. It's over 100 years old. And the following little verse is on there. It says, pause, stranger, when you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. Well, somebody went by and saw that old tombstone. And they added two additional lines to it. It said, to follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. <laughs> Pretty wise, right? The idea that we know judgment is coming and that we're prepared. Now, I promised you tonight, last night, I promised tonight that I would try to deal, if we ended up talking on this subject, which we are, I would try to deal with the old question. Can you know you're going to heaven? Think about it. If I came up to you right now and said, are you going to heaven? I want you to think in your mind what you would say. Get that in your mind. What, what, what answer did you just give? Are you going to heaven? Kind of keep that lodged in your mind for a moment. And let's explore the scripture. And like we did last night when I asked the question, will we know one another in heaven? I said, I want you to come to your own conclusion from the scriptures what we're going to present. The same way tonight. Can I know I'm going to heaven? If someone comes up to you and says, do you know you're saved? How would you answer? Do you know you're going to heaven? So let's just look at scripture and see what the Bible says and you, you tell me how that answer should be given. The first scripture I want to invite your attention to, and I want to spend a few moments on this. I think this is important. For us to understand as Christians. The first one's found in 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. What is that? Right this. So you'll know that you have eternal life. Well, how 
how can I be certain that heaven is my eternal home? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 and 1, now we know, we know, that if this earthly tent that we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Did you notice the expression that Paul used? He said, we know this. Of course, only by God's grace can we have that assurance. Jesus reminded us that we need to do the Father's will. Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but the one who does the will of my Father. So, paraphrase it, if you do the will of my Father, then you will enter the kingdom. Now let's look at some verses on hope. 1 Peter 1.13, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed to be given you when he's revealed. 1 Peter 5, 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. What's your burden? Can you know you're saved? Can you know you're going to heaven? 1 John 2, 28, and now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him tell me when the Lord comes back I can be confident? You know, as a teenager, I told some of you about a dream I had. I had another dream. I'm a dreamer. <laughs> but I, I had a dream when I was about 15, you know, and I, I was raised in the church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. But if you'd asked me then, do you know if you're going to heaven? I probably I was a Christian, but I don't know that I would have said absolutely. But I was looking out our picture window in this dream, the clouds at the end of the horizon started rolling up like a scroll. And I've heard it preach, you know, out of Revelation. The sky will roll up like a scroll. It just started rolling up and you could see forever. And I remember in that dream thinking, oh no, it's the end of the world and I'm not ready. <clears throat> That's pretty amazing to think about the end of the world coming and you know you're not ready. Well, the Bible tells us that we can be confident and we can be unashamed before him at his coming. Now, I just want to explore this a little bit longer, then we're going to move on to some other points. But there is something so fantastic in John. You know, if you don't get anything else out of this sermon, I want you to get this point. Don't want you to miss this point if you don't get anything else. In 1 John, the word of God, how can we, uh, let me ask, how can we be confident? He says we can. We can be confident. We can have confidence, not ashamed, and his coming. First John 2, 28, there it is. Well, how does that happen? I think I figured it out. Because over there in First uh, uh, John chapter 4 and verse 17, here's what the word of God says. Love has been perfected among us in this that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Did you know you can be bold in the day of judgment? How? He says, because as he is, so are we in this world. The way we can be bold on the day of judgment is because we are like Jesus in this world. 
And that's called transformation. Paul reminded the Corinthians in the second Corinthian letter, he says that you are being transformed. The word transformation, by the way, comes from two Greek words, meta and more. The word meta means to change. And the word more means form. You put the two words together, metamorph, and you've got to change into another form. You've heard of metamorphosis? Caterpillar becomes a butterfly, right? That's metamorphosis. It comes from those two Greek words. It changes into a different form. And that's what the Bible says happens to us as we follow Christ, is that we are being changed. You don't just come up out of the water in baptism and you, you don't have any more growth to do. But as you gaze upon Jesus in your life, day after day, month after month, year after year, more and more your life is to become like his. And you be begin to develop this sense of boldness or, or confidence in your being. Because John said, because in this life we are like him. Isn't that beautiful? Some of you love literature. Remember the great stone face story from childhood years? I love that story. The boy that grew up in a village ages ago. And, and in their village there was a big mountain off in the distance and it had, you know, it was made of rock, of course, and and it looked like a face up there. It had an image of a face. Nature had made it that way. And the legend in the village was that one day their village would come under severe attack. And that there would come in a great leader that would save the village with his power and his ability to, to uh, gather the troops and his wisdom. And that he would have the image of that face on the mountain. That was the legend. So the little story is every day that boy would go out there and he was so fascinated by that from the age of five. He'd just gaze at that mountain for about an hour every morning. And every night he would just gaze and think about what that day would be like. And he did that his fifth year, sixth, seventh, tenth, through his teenage years, fascinated, thinking about what that would be like, gazing at that mountain. The boy was now into his late 20s and one day the enemies were preparing to attack. And he mounted the troops. He got the people together. He figured out a way to, to save themselves and to protect themselves. And after the victory was finished, they looked upon the young man so thankful for what he had done. And they looked up on the mountain and they noticed that his face looked like the face on the mountain. The little story, of course, is transformation. He gazed and thought about it so long that he had taken on the very future, and that's us. We gaze daily upon Jesus. We think about him. We implement what he taught, and over time, we are being, Paul said, transformed into the image of Christ. So we're talking about heaven, and we're talking about is our name written Let's talk about our inheritance for a moment. Years ago, Forbes magazine said at that time, the richest man on earth was Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft. Net worth at that point was $50 billion. That's, by the way, a five with 10 zeros stuck on. He dropped out of college to start his computer company. 
Peter to divide his wealth among his three children, they would be the richest pe people on the earth, according to this article. Oprah Winfrey hit the Forbes annual celebrity 100 several years ago. Her earnings for the previous 12 months, 260 million, not, not too bad for a year. Sam Walton, a J.C. Penney clerk, started Walmart, Rogers, Arkansas, 1962. After his death in 1992, each of his four children received $5 billion, and now they're worth way over three times that amount. You might say that's kind of impressive. By the way, we've got a brother in Rogers, Arkansas, that's a CPA, and he manages the wealth of the Walton family. That's where Walmart started. He is their accountant and their CPA, their wealth manager. And after Sam died, he got up in the pulpit, he had the sermon, he said, you know, I'm gonna do something this morning, I probably shouldn't do it, but everybody's trying to figure out what Sam Walton left. You know, how much money did he leave? He said, probably this isn't the right thing, but I trust you all. Wall Street has it wrong, they have no idea. He said, I keep the books for him, I know what he left. Everybody's on the edge of their gonna tell you said he left it all <laughs> and of course that's true we leave it all but all of these people with all of this money but what about our inheritance when you put it in eternity we're heirs of God who owns it all the Bible says in Revelation 21 and 7 he who overcomes that will inherit all of this Romans 8 we are heirs, heirs of God. First Peter 1 and 4, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. We've got an inheritance coming. And it's amazing. Another thing about heaven, heaven is our home. You know, someone said you might ought to hold off on building your dream home on earth because the Lord's already building your real dream home in heaven. Jesus said, John 14 and verse 1, in my Father's house are many mansions. Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. Here's the real acid test as we come down to the final moments of this study tonight. Of our relationships to Christ, our relationship. One whose citizenship is in heaven not only expects, but he greatly desires and longs for the Lord's return. If our citizenship is in heaven, we're excited about the Lord coming back. If the sky was to crack right now, and we look up and Jesus is coming on the clouds, would your first thought be, oh no, I'm not ready? Or would it be, oh yes, close a little story. Old story is told. Many, many years ago, there was a retiring missionary. He'd spent his lifetime in a foreign field. It was hard work. He just happened to be on the same boat as the President of the United States coming back from somewhere. This was ages ago for the clue. Cheering crowds, a military band, red carpet, banners, the media. Welcome the President home. 
And the missionary who spent most all of his life in many sacrifices and finally came back home to America, swift off the boat unnoticed. He was feeling a little bit of self-pity and maybe even a little resentment. He thought, I gave my whole life. And there's a band, and there's all this fanfare, and not even one person came to meet me at the boat. He was bothered by that. He went to sleep that night. He had a dream. In his dream, he was kind of reliving that. You know, I'm feeling bad about this. In his dream, God gently reminded him in the dream, but my child, you're not home yet. I'm home. And that's so true. We'll not be in heaven two seconds. We'll probably... We were thinking back on our life, we'd probably think, why did I place so much importance on things that were so temporary? What was I thinking? Why did I waste so much time and energy and concern over things that now I understand would never last? So our conclusion is when life gets tough, when we're overwhelmed with doubts, and we sometimes wonder, is it really all worth all the effort? The encouragement is you're not home yet and at death you won't leave home but you'll go home sometimes when someone dies we says I'm, I'm sorry you lost your son or I'm sorry you lost your relative or if our relatives are Christian you know when something's lost I don't know where it is but when a Christian dies we didn't lose it we know 